Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, where normally we analyze the week's health tech news and views so you don't have to. This week, we're doing something a little bit different, but I'm delighted to be joined by Jess Valmu from the Somex team. Jess, how's your week going? My week's been good. Yeah, I mean, here in Health Tech Pigeon, we're very used to talking to one another and occasionally special guests. Um, but this week, we've been talking to lots and lots of different people out and about on the road. Um, we've been at the Sifted Summit doing our first ever live Health Tech Pigeon meetup, which was fantastic. And watch this space. I'm sure there'll be plenty more live pigeoning to come in the future. Yeah, so Sifted was great. And last week, we were also at Het Show uh, across both days, uh, catching up with uh, friends, colleagues, clients across the board, uh, and having the rare opportunity to interview people uh, live from the show. So we're going to do something a bit different this week. We talked to six really interesting people at Het, and we're going to give uh, a, a rare insight into some live from Het conversations. So thanks to the Het team for setting us up with these. Uh uh, we'll kick off by speaking to Sam Shah, who's chair of the HET steering committee. And as he will no doubt explain to us, wears a lot of other hats too. But have a listen to my conversation with Sam. So, Sam, um, you're obviously wearing a lot of hats. Which ones are you wearing today? Well, today I am the chair of the HET steering committee. And uh, I've had the great privilege to chair HET for the last few years. But certainly I would say this particular hat the last two days probably been more interesting than most because of the mix of conversations across innovation, research, health tech, digital health, clinical informatics and workforce all in one place. But a level of depth in those conversations I haven't seen for a few years. Fantastic, fantastic. And what, what, you know, what have you brought from your, your day job, your other, your other roles into, into this uh, this event today? Well, I, I, I come and sit in a very privileged space where I've been able to work clinically on the front line, been able to work in digital health at the centre of the NHS, policy environment with government and leading major programmes, but also working in the investment landscape and most recently in the startup space. And for me, it has been a culmination of all those things. I've been able to ask the questions, around what's going to happen around the policy agenda, particularly to support startups coming into the healthcare landscape and the system. There's been the other part where I've been able to challenge some of my former colleagues and friends on their policy initiatives and programs they're running, particularly around the NHS app, EPRs and EHRs. What do they really mean around data initiatives across the system? And what are they going to do to support growth of the workforce? A really interesting few days bringing together not only components of my professional life, but really hearing from many people working on this across the health system, in industry, in startups, and those organizations supporting health and care across England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. You've been all over the last couple of days. What are, you, what are the questions? What are the feelings, the viewpoints that you keep hearing? So many questions, but the one that comes up time and time again is where is the money coming from to pay for any of this? What is being done to make it easier for startups, innovators, health tech suppliers, work with the NHS? Who is it that is policing the standards? Where have the people gone? As the NHS, and particularly in England, goes into sort of shutdown mode over the next 18 months, who is gonna be left to deploy any of these programs nationally? Questions about 
EPR and EHR maturity. We've suddenly gone from a system where on the one side, a year ago, somebody would have said, well, the country's only got 40 to 45% of, of coverage of EHRs to one that was described as 90%. Is it real or is it just EHR by numbers? So, so it's uh, obviously a bit of a fierce competition then for, I guess, resources, money, workforce, the capacity in the system to get anything done. How do you how how do you prove return on investment as a as any of the any of these fantastic suppliers? How do you know what should they be going in with? What do they need to uh, talk about? What do they need to say about themselves? Who do they need to speak to? I think there are three cases that any any supplier needs to bring into the system. The first is recommending, supporting, and providing the evidence around the clinical case for change. Clinicians, frontline workers need to be convinced of the technology, whether they use it directly or whether how it might impact their patients, the people they're working with, or the tech they might be using for their jobs. Demonstrate that clinical case for change. Do it in a strong way and provide some evidence. The second is, that case for hospital management, the one for the, the decision makers around what it is going to do to help them achieve the outcomes they're looking for, whether it's a cost improvement plan, whether it's improvement in terms of process and efficiency or productivity, demonstrating how that's going to come, to case, come together and how it will support the business case they're going to have to put together. The final bit, though, is for the funder, the budget holder, the person making the commissioning decision. And that is demonstrating that there's a return on investment which brings a one to four ratio at minimum. I say that because it's ingrained in my brain from the days in which I had to write these business cases as well. And demonstrating there's a one to four, what, for every one pound spent, there's a four pound return. And proving and demonstrating that and over a three-year time horizon, the minimum is important because that is the thing that decision makers will need to release that investment later on and link it back to one of the priorities for the system, whether that's workforce, whether it's productivity, efficiency, or clinical outcomes. What is the hottest initiative you've seen at HEP over the last couple of days? That's a really tough question because there are so many across different domains. The concept of moving from virtual wards to virtual cares. There's so many suppliers here at the moment doing this, but those that are focusing on the wider aspects of virtual care. So not just moving what was a hospital outwards, but social care as well. And even thinking about the virtual dimension of a primary care environment is important. So those are hot at the moment and important to watch. And what are we going to be talking about in HET 2024? What are you excited about? What do we need to have solved by then? Well, there are lots of things to solve by then, but the things I'd really like to see solved is at the very least, clinicians being able to reduce their burden by having more efficient clinical recording systems that provide outcomes that they can make quicker and easier decisions with patients are, of course, a good thing. Thanks, Sam. Really appreciate you speaking to us. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Well, fantastic to hear from Sam there. Uh, obviously, a lot going on in his life at the moment. Uh, really interested to get his view on the kind of hot things that are going on. I mean, he mentioned virtual wards, obviously a big technology that we've uh, covered a lot in Pigeon this year, not least with all of the government announcements, uh, all of the announcements coming from companies like Dockler. What are your thoughts on virtual wards, Jess? Yeah, I've always been a big fan of virtual wards delivered in the right way. I think um, they're a fantastic example of how we should be um, treating patients in their own home um, and supporting the NHS to deliver services in a more efficient way, um, in a way that reduces the strain on doctors um, and on facilities. Um, and yeah, really just 
shows like makes use of some of the incredible innovations that exist um, and that have the potential to deliver a lot of benefit to patients and to the NHS and I think virtual wards is an excellent use case for some of these technologies and it is really interesting to hear about um, trusts that are using virtual wards effectively and I hope that some of the best um, practice examples can be shared more widely and adopted by other trusts. Fantastic. It's uh, really good to hear you say that because our next conversation, I had the privilege of speaking to Vivian Yu, who is the clinical lead for the virtual ward at NHS Suffolk and Northeast Essex Integrated Care Board. Um, so should we, uh, should we have a listen and see what, uh, what Pigeon and Vivian uh, discussed? So Vivian, thank you for joining us. Can you tell me who you are, what you do, what that looks like on a day-to-day basis? Of course, and thank you for having me here. My name is Vivian Yu. I'm a consultant nephrologist and a physician at the West Suffolk Hospital. And I'm also the clinical lead at the Suffolk and Northeast Essex ICS for the virtual ward. So uh, what that really means on a day-to-day basis is that I look after clinically the virtual ward at the West Suffolk Hospital, but also I do the strategic planning and management for the ICS virtual wards across our whole patch. So that day can be really varied. So I often spend my mornings doing the virtual ward round, which I'm happy to talk a little bit more about but I speak to a whole variety of patients through our digital monitoring platform. Um, I also go and see patients on the wards or if they come through from the community for referrals, um, onboard them. And then I spend the afternoons often meeting colleagues from all different sectors um, within the trust, but also within the ICS to plan our next steps in the virtual ward about how we can make and deliver better care for our patients. Amazing. And how has your head been? It's been very exciting, I have to say. It's been an eye-opening experience coming here to London, Suffolk, the very rural area. But actually coming here, you just see the scope of so many things that you could do in the virtual ward. I've met different suppliers. I've met colleagues from different ICSs, different virtual wards, and actually sharing that experience and getting um, their feedback and their advice has been really invaluable. So I'm loving it. Fantastic. And you're speaking... Later today, is that right? What are you sharing? So I'm actually uh, doing a talk about our virtual ward and I'm sharing the evolution of the process. So I think a lot of people now are aware of what a virtual ward actually is and what the process is. Um, And what I thought I would talk about are the nitty gritty issues that often I think about on a daily basis. So what are the challenges that we've encountered? What are the key questions that people often ask us when they come to visit from other ICSs? And talk a little bit about how we've overcome some of those challenges. But I also want to be honest because I don't think we're a finished journey. We're not a finished package. And I think it's really important to say to those who may be at the beginning of their virtual world journey, actually, there are these key barriers that you will come to. And actually, we can work together to overcome those. And it's really important to keep going. So we've got, um, I mean, we talk about virtual wards all the time on Health Tech Vision Podcast. Uh, and a lot of news lately uh, about government depending on it for, for the winter. Um, how, how far away are we from, um, in, in your world, you're seeing virtual wards every day. You're, you're overseeing them. How far are we from them being that solution to that problem? I think that's quite a complex issue because I think that there is... Um, a need for certain people in government to see it as a magic bullet, a magic wand. And I think we all know that healthcare is very complicated and that there may not be one solution, one magic wand. However, what we do see is that there are key cohorts of patients who don't need to be within the confines of the hospital. And that much is very, very clear. 
The second thing that we've seen from virtual wards is that patients really liked being on a virtual ward. The feedback we've had is overwhelmingly positive. And we have had patients who've been with us on a virtual ward. They come in, the first thing they say at the front door is, I don't want to be here. I want to go home on the virtual ward. And I think that's really great because patients are advocating for what they want. And I think within the NHS, we need to deliver what the patients and their families want. I think it's not for doctors and nurses and other healthcare professionals to dictate. And I think thirdly, there are always going to be some people who require the main hospital. There are those who are going to need the ITU, who need an operation to fix their broken leg or otherwise. So I don't think the virtual ward is going to overcome that kind of challenge. However, I think we can be a key part of a winter escalation plan. We can be a key part of reducing the pressures within the hospital and also delivering a different and hopefully better experience for the patient. So I think that much um, is in the virtual world's future. You mentioned that everyone's sort of facing the same barriers so you can, you, or, and that you can maybe help companies that are at the start of that journey kind of know what to expect, what, what to come and maybe even help them overcome some of that as well. What's everyone going to see when it comes to virtual wards? What's, what's the big issues we've got to get around? I think firstly is having the vision of what your virtual ward should look like. And I think virtual wards are quite heterogeneous because of the way that they sprung up in a fairly short space of time. And so there are lots of different models out there. And I think if you were at the start, it's really important to visualize what virtual ward is right for your patients, your locality, your ICS. And that may look different across your ICS. So what works for one acute provider may not work across three different acute providers, for example. I think secondly, clinician engagement is often um, a struggle and it's something I touch upon in my talk a bit later on. So we started with go with the willing, go with those who are really excited, the early adopters who are going to take your pathways, who are going to really engage in helping you do the hard work of setting up and then hopefully become champions for you and spread the word amongst colleagues. And I think finally, workforce is a really key challenge. We all know that the NHS is struggling at the moment with workforce. You don't need to click on many news sites to find out about industrial action and so on. So actually, it's how you're going to convince the workforce to come and work for a very different model of care and how you're going to retain that workforce. So we've all, we've, uh, we all have in our minds the idea of what a ward looks like. A lot of us have been on one, seen it, either from the patient or the provider side. What does it look like when it goes virtual? Is it, is it the same thing, just done remotely along the way away? What, what the, you know, how do we make it happen? What does day-to-day -day running a virtual ward look like? Yeah, that's a great question. And often my colleagues are very surprised when they see me. The patients are very surprised to see me. They think they should be seeing some avatar of a doctor who's going to come and talk to them. So actually, we take our patients from the front door mostly. And I think that's where a virtual ward is most effective when it's embedded in your front door village. So we meet the patients in person almost all of the time. And I think that's very important because I think it builds that patient confidence in who you are and who the team are. So we often go down as a medical and nursing team to meet the patient with our kit in hand and demonstrate an explain what the structure of the virtual ward looks like. Once they're all set up, they go home. And once they're at home, they receive a welcome home from hospital call. Again, I think that's really important for patient confidence to say, we've got you, we're here looking after you, you can still contact us at any time. And that's really important because in a hospital, the patient knows, they just press a buzzer and a nurse will be with them shortly. They know that if they become poorly, a doctor will be with them. We've also done ward rounds with our community teams on board. So actually you can have the GP or the community matron joining the ward round with the patient and actually having face-to-face -face care as well as the virtual care. So actually you can make that ward round what you will. Um, we're based within a hub in the main hospital. So we have a, a small-ish room, which could be bigger, um, but we actually have all of our nurses and uh, multi-professional team in there 
there and we're talking to the patients, scanning referrals, monitoring the dashboard of all the vital signs as well as doing those virtual calls. And I do need to give a huge shout out to the team because it's not run by me single-handedly, as you can imagine. We have a wonderful team of nursing staff. Our senior staff coordinate the referrals and liaisons with all the specialist teams because the patients have the same access to specialist teams as if they were sitting in a hospital. They have the same access to radiological intervention as if they were sitting in a hospital. And our nurses coordinate that as well as our care coordinator. We also have a wonderful pharmacist who calls the patient and goes through all their medications. They make sure they have enough stock. They explain why they're on certain medications. And patients often leave us with a renewed understanding of why they need to take their medicines. And actually, we get rid of a lot of stock that they weren't using before because they didn't know what it was about. And we also have our lovely team who go out and do the face-to-face -face visits. So many of our patients will have twice daily visits from our nursing team. We can do wound care, we can do insulins, we can help them with the kit if that's what they need, but actually we deliver intravenous medications. And so many patients are in hospital for a bit of intravenous diuretics for heart failure or antibiotics. And the rest of the time, they're not seen, they don't have anything else they're doing in hospital. Whereas now at home, they can be with their family, and many report they feel so much better being in their own bed surrounded by family. Many report that they feel much better because they're eating their own food. Although one patient did eat Domino's as soon as he returned home on the ward round. And we did have talk about a healthy diet. But actually a lot of them come and talk to us from their garden. They come and talk to us with their pets. And I think that effect on patient experience can't be underestimated. What problems do we want to solve by next year? What are you excited to see? What are you uh, looking forward to hearing about next, next year at HET? I think that's, a, again, a really great question. I think for me, it would be really good to see solutions which help integrate remote monitoring directly into EPRs. I think if we were going to talk to my digital team, that would be the number one ask. Actually reducing that manual duplication of having to copy and paste data from one solution to another. It takes a lot of time. And of course, you have the human factor element in there. Things can get copied in wrong. I think having a solution which is all in house would also be great. So actually having an EPR which allows you to do remote monitoring, not only for a virtual ward actually, but for managing long-term conditions and for patients who wait well, um, but not necessarily having the intensity of that remote monitoring that those on a virtual ward have would be great. So a solution that offers a flexible solution to tailor up and down the monitoring needs for patients would be really useful. Fantastic. I hope we can see that next year. Thank you very much for having me here. Thank you for joining us. That was Vivian Yu talking about what virtual wards look like in practice and some of the key challenges that we face in implementation. It's safe to say that virtual wards is definitely one of the big topics on everyone's mind at the moment, and that was re definitely reflected in the agenda for this year's HET. One of the other big topics that we're seeing a lot and talking about a lot and definitely isn't going to go away anytime soon is AI. Uh, and it was great to have an opportunity to speak to the CEO of uh, Digital Therapeutic, Weiser, uh, and HET Working Group member, Ross O'Brien, about what they're doing with AI, but also some of the range of initiatives and perspectives going on at HEP discussing AI as well. I'm Ross O'Brien. I am uh, part of the HEP working group, so um, steering HEP uh, in terms of the content, in terms of the speakers, in terms of uh, uh, what, what, what are the hot topics in health and tech at the moment. Um, and I am also managing director of an AI mental health company called Weiser. Um, we're a global company, 6 million users on the platform globally. Um, and we create health solutions both for um, uh, children and young people's programs in the NHS and also ad adults programs in the NHS. 
along the entire care pathway. And what does the what does your wiser role look like day to day? What what do you do there? Day to day, so uh, Wiser exists as a global company, and we're about six seven years old now. Um, in uh, in the UK, uh, we've only been around for two years, um, and so my role is growing the UK team, um, uh, talking to children and young people services, CAM services, talking to uh, adults talking therapy services, talking to uh, commissioners for local authorities who want to do population health type uh, to work, um, and then actually trying to find out what. Uh, what they need, where their pain points are. So talking to clinicians, talking to the actual patients of the service. Um, and we always take the approach in our work that rather than us say AI is the shiny big thing and we can come along and do tons of great stuff for you, where we, we just carry on with the approach that's always worked for me in terms of digital innovation and change, which is what are your problems? What, what, what do you need to solve? in order that we're actually benefiting service rather than coming up with our external ideas and trying to place them into NHS care pathways. How did you get from Wiser to steering committee at HEP? What, what's, uh... It was the opposite way around, actually. When I first started to come to HEP, um, uh, tech, tech was the answer in health. That's, it's going to be the thing, uh, or it was going to be the thing that helped us with um, uh, workplace efficiency, um, uh, making patients' lives better, and it just seemed kind of like a no-brainer. Um, and so I uh, uh, got to meet some of the organisers and got to understand some of their programmes. And like, unfortunately, uh, a lot of people, the way that they uh, received me in life, I just started to ask lots and lots of questions about how how I could be involved um, and what I could do and why don't you do this, that and the other. And I think they just got a bit bored of me asking the same <laughs> questions all the time and just said, okay, fine, but can you actually come and help us with this? Because you seem to have a lot of ideas. So what problems are we solving this year at HEP? What, what's, uh, what's everyone focused on? What are we uh, excited about? What are we, uh, what are we trying to fix? Uh, I've chaired two panels this morning. Um, uh, one was uh, quite a provocative one um, on uh, uh, what is ChatGPT doing in health and uh, are we essentially opening a Pandora's box with large language models um, because it's a really, really, really topical area. Um, I think there are uh, enormously exciting applications for large language models in healthcare. Um, and uh, talking to uh, GPs, occupational therapists, um, mental health clinicians, uh, HR departments, everyone's got their own idea about what they could use it for, but equally everyone's a little bit hesitant about what they should be using, ChatGPT, BARDS, PI, uh, all of the different large language models for, um, whether they should be using it at all, uh, where are the kind of like guidelines, guardrails, safeguards, um, uh, where's the money, where's the national strategy, so all, all of that kind of stuff. So there are really, there are, we met today some really, really interesting pioneers um, uh, that are effectively uh, taking parts of their clinical process 
adding a large language model into it in order that a patient can kind of self-serve. So a patient could, um, the, the example um, uh, that we were given was uh, a patient would have a set of instructions uh, to look at in terms of their cardiovascular care. Um, and normally that could be kind of like a, a 20 page document. Um, and instead the clinician had built a model whereby the patient could just interrogate a chatbot and say, what do I do for this certain condition? Or should I be worried about X or uh, uh, anything that they would find in their normal kind of crib sheet uh, or patient education leaflets? And it's a great example of how patients can feel supported in that care pathway is incredibly reassuring. It takes the burden off the NHS and it makes the patient ultimately feel like they're more in control of, of something that might be a difficult or a scary procedure that they're about to, to go through. We were also talking about the scaling of automation. So AI is this year's sexy topic. Um, I think if we went back uh, about two or three years ago, uh, robotic process automation was the sexy topic. Um, and so we kind of revisited where where that is, where RPA is in the trajectory of uh, the NHS. Has it been scaled? Has it been successful? Um, and there were some really interesting insights around um, whether we should be kind of looking for uh, clinical benefits, whether we should be looking for HR benefits, whether we should be looking for finance benefits, but also um, should we be concentrating on return on investment or should we be concentrating on uh, uh, quality of care? And there were some really lovely, lively, lively debates. And I think the audience generally and the panel came down on RPA gives us an opportunity to change the quality of care for patients. And that's what we should be concentrating on. So we talked about last year's sexy uh, technology. We talked about this year's sexy technology. What are we looking forward to in the next 12 months? Hopefully we'll see a lot more investment into creating frameworks for demonstrating good applications of AI and safe applications uh, of, of AI. Um, but I do think the, the leap that we've seen in, in the large language models is also going to be something that is quite contentious. I think if we cast our mind back to the time where uh, WhatsApp um, started to become quite ubiquitous, um, uh, the, uh, the patient population or you know, general everyday day-to-day -day folk were using WhatsApp in their daily lives always. Separately, uh, clinicians, GPs, health health uh, practitioners, and professionals were also using it in their daily lives and sometimes internally within work. Now, when those two worlds collided and doctors or clinicians started to talk to their patients um, or groups of patients via WhatsApp. That was the Pandora's box moment as well. Like, is it safe? Um, is, it, is it okay in terms of GDPR? Uh, how do I manage risk for patients, you know, communicating this method? I think we're exactly there now, but with large language models. And I guess drawing the line between the, uh, the, the consumer and the, the health applications, right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thanks, Ross. That was amazing. Thank you cool. so much. Lots to think about from Ross there. Where are the benefits coming from? Where are the applications in healthcare for AI? And in particular, large language models. 
We've talked about this uh, a lot in the past on Pigeon Podcast, and I'm sure we'll spend a lot of the next year doing so. We um, we uh, we uh, had a great chat with Alina from Fibris and, and Rob from Olus Medical earlier this week. Jess, what are, what are your thoughts on uh, large language models? Yeah, I mean, I was having this conversation um, yesterday at Sifted Summit that if you want to start an argument with a bunch of health tech nerds, then all you have to do is like throw in the world throw in the word large language models or AI uh, and then just stand back and watch the arguments start themselves. Um, so it's something that a topic that I generally leave to the experts to discuss, but kind of my takeaways from listening to the conversations that sifted and listening to the interviews we've been doing with the experts recently is that um, AI has its place and will, There's we can't avoid the fact that AI is going to be playing a massive role in healthcare over the coming uh, five years, but it's not a tool for every single job. Um, sometimes um, it's best to stick with slightly less flashy and um, popular technologies um, that do the job more effectively. Um, so uh, yeah, founders don't be looking to AI and large language models to solve all of your problems. Sometimes um, older technologies can do the job more effectively. <laughs> I think that's a great perspective. And also, you've sort of just given us an indication of how you remove yourself from conversations with health tech nerds you don't want to be in. <laughs> uh, just drop that AI bomb and run and see what happens. Tried and tested. <laughs> well, uh, obviously, I think, you know, we've raised some good questions about how we're going to roll out AI and what we're going to prioritize, particularly when it comes to sort of what clinical areas, um, whether there's some admin, which admin areas will be important to roll AI out in health as well. Um, on this point, I actually had a great uh, chat with Tristy Tanaka, who's head of the CMO's office at Birmingham Black Country ICB. Started out her career in uh, human rights and NGOs charities in the US and and is now ended up in the Black Country working in the NHS, which is a fantastically windy career path that Pigeon loves, loves to see. So at this point, uh, we'll go straight to our interview with Tristy uh, and hear what she had to say about challenges of rolling AI out and some of the uh, some of the bigger difficulties that the NHS might face. So a little bit about me. Um, I'm Christine Tanaka. I um, have a very curvy path. Um, my career started in the non-governmental organization space. So organizations, small and medium, that are working on human rights, social justice, food security, climate change, all of those things over 20 years ago. And um, I was working in those organizations trying to get the best of what they could with the internet and the use of these technologies for advocacy um, for, those, for those types of challenges in global issues actually and um, made a life decision and jumped across the pond landed in the midlands uh joined as a local authority um had the real privilege and honor to work with elected members of the early days of technology a very different organizational space if you're talking about a, a local authority um worked then to be there if you like if they don't mind me saying their trusted advisor on technology um which is fascinating because of the challenges um i got to see um not only with relationships but but also load um, when we're talking about change, so the technology changes were happening. So I did technology consulting for five years. It was a tremendous opportunity to meet um, clients from around the world. Uh, we were London-based, and uh, we were, again, looking at transformation um, service management at the time. And then it extended into operating models and strategy. 
all of that experience helped me to understand how management consultancies inform and influence the way that um, large organizations, institutions, if you like, like the NHS who use management consultancies work, which is um, really interesting. So I've been very fortunate to be in the NHS now. I landed at the time we were still in COVID and uh, the teams were working very hard to try to understand what was happening with vaccination rollout and vaccination uptake. So the embrace of health inequalities, the embrace of equity, diversity and inclusion in the workforce, these are all very timely things to ensure that when we're talking about digital transformation, especially of, for access and supports for folks that are at home or stuck in the middle on waiting lists, that they have um, opportunities to be able to get support that, that they need. Um, it's a very challenging time, to say the least. So talking about forging new relationships and in fact, talk of being in rosy places. We're at HET. What's been your highlight so far? What, what, what problems are we solving? Have we solved any problems at HET today? Or Being at HET is always a, an incredible learning experience. Not only do you have the opportunity to meet potential new partners, but you get to meet up with colleagues that you may not have seen in a few years um, or maybe just seen through a screen. Um, HET brings um, a variety of perspectives. And uh, there was one that really touched me yesterday it was um, from uh, one of the award winners. Um, I can't remember the name of it. It's the Trojan Mouse <laughs> Award winner. Um, and um, she had pre presented her case study on um, how uh, one could actually improve the care for those who were experienced. One, folks with darker skin tones could improve the care for um, or could have better care for their pressure ulcers. And it was really fascinating because um, her studies, um, alongside her, her identification of a problem, so folks with darker uh, skin tones will uh, present different present their problems differently. And what she found was that um, the nurses um, who were out doing the checks uh, wouldn't necessarily pick up the pressure, the emergence of pressure ulcers. So then it would get to the point they're quite critical and, and they can be quite, they can be deadly, as I understand, um, in the wound care side of things. So it was um, a real eye opener because if we're looking at standard data sets now, we're using them for analysis and we're looking at um, speeding up the acceleration and adoption of AI solutions that take these standard data sets. What are we missing and what are we making assumptions about? Um, and I think so when we're looking at those kinds of solutions, this is the thing on the top of my, my mind because industry is very keen, the UK government's very keen on rolling out um, AI solutions in the clinical and care spaces. Do we have the right data? That's quite a takeaway to come away from with that. It is, it is, it's important because it's all happening very fast. And I think in some ways, um, there's something about uh, whether or not we can be brave enough to set the pace uh, for the types of transformations, because it's not just one, it's many, in many different ways, uh, through a different provider hat. So if you're in a setting of acute trust, or you're in a setting of a mental health trust, or you're in primary care or community service, or let's say you're outside of those kind of provider environments and you're in a voluntary community organization, you know, depending on how well the organizations are sharing information, bringing people to the table, um, have transparency around their decision making, not discussions, but the actual decision making and the prioritization, where those investments are going to go, that they fund not only the project, but the ongoing service. So my final question is going to irritate you now. After oh, no. Because, uh, <laughs> it's still quite dark, isn't it? Sorry. No, it's absolutely important to look long term, but I'm going to ask you a short term question. We've, we talked about AI. We've talked about a lot of things already, but 
what 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 do you want to see in the next year? What are you looking forward to in the next year? And what should we be focusing on in the next 12 months? What what problem are we talking about now that we can solve by next year's head? Maybe wherever you are, we could solve the problems of looking out as well as looking in by using our time to build those relationships that help us to make better decisions about the solutions that we are going to be implementing over time. So how can we actively use spaces like uh, when we come together at HET? How could we use resources like the Future NHS platform? How could we uh, share across uh, national fora that are created, informal fora, to give folks a space who are working professionals in their particular area, like for information information governance, uh, for example, for information governance, and um, how could we help each other to make better decisions that are happening on the fly? And um, I think those informal networks of professionals um, not only give safe spaces for people to be able to test out and challenge ideas amongst their colleagues, but also maybe start to um, reduce some of the difficulties that happen when we have to do digital transformation very quickly or transformation very quickly. We already have a base, um, at least amongst our professional colleagues that we recognize and, and start to grow that because we will be sitting with people across different tables. So for next year at HATS, it would be starting to see how either we understand that if there's a difference geographically, we understand that by setting, so primary care, community care or intermediate care, uh, emergency uh, and uh, acute urgent and emergency services, um, and of course the acutes. Fascinating perspectives there from uh, Tristy. That's only about a quarter of the conversation we had, which uh, in the end ranged from values-based career choices to who pays for AI and when. Hopefully we'll have the opportunity to bring her on as a podcast guest really soon. So before we go, we just want to say thanks to everyone at HET, particularly Emma, for securing us all of these interviews and lining up a really great range of people to talk to. We loved our time at HET this year, and we can't wait to go back next year. We also can't wait to go back to the Sifted Summit next year, so hopefully we can replicate that. Big shout out to Sophie from Sifted for helping us organise the first ever live Health Tech Pigeon meetup. Absolutely. First of many, I hope. We'll leave you with the final words from the Chair of Parliament's Health and Social Care Select Committee, Steve Bryan MP. But don't forget, you can find all this week's stories as well as the best jobs, pods and events at healthtechpigeon.com. We'll see you all next week. So, Steve, how has your HET experience been? Fantastic. The fact that HET is happening is just a good thing. So the NHS got all these assumptions around its long-term workforce plan and its long-term plan. They're all based on assumptions of productivity. That isn't going to happen unless we join up the tech and the people. If we do that, then the health service has a real chance to move forward. And HET is a real part of that. Fantastic. And what's your, what have you been doing at HET today? I've been speaking about integrated care systems and doing a sort of fireside chat, although I didn't notice a fireplace, about what they're like and uh, the work that we've been doing on them and the work we've been doing on digital transformation of the NHS and then talking to so many exhibitors that are here. Fantastic. Final question from me. What do you want to see at HET 2024? What are you looking forward to? What's, what's exciting you about it? I think this is the place where innovation comes and shows off. And I want to see even more of that. I want to see more exciting innovation next year. There's a lot of it here this year. And uh, this is my first time at HET, but I'll be back next year. Fantastic. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate right. it.